Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Hello, I'm Paula Romali, Vice Chair of the Russian American Business and Culture Council. I'd like to welcome you to our program today, Red Penguins, Greed, Corruption, and Capitalism Run Amok in Post-Soviet Russia. First off, I'd like to thank Global Minnesota for organizing our digital gathering space today. And I'd also like to thank all of the organizing partners who are listed in the chat box. I encourage you to check out these organizations and also to check out their events. And thanks to the audience today for tuning in for a special conversation about the new documentary, Red Penguins. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival in late 2019. It had its general release in the US last month and has since become one of the top 10 downloaded documentaries in the United States. The film portrays the partnership between the NHL Pittsburgh Penguins and Russia's legendary Red Army hockey team that lasted for two years from 1993 to 1995. On one level, the film plays as dark comedy, following the fascinating ups and downs of the venture. Major commercial success, but also cultural miscues, mistrust, corruption, and even murder. On another level, the film reflects the tragic and tumultuous tale of Russia's 1990s. The country was desperately trying to transition from communism and rigid state control of nearly everything, to capitalism, democracy, and a free civil society. But the Soviet Union's collapse in late 1991 had left a void, and into that void, something that Karl Marx might have called primitive capitalism was sweeping in. So let's watch this first short clip as an introduction. Top story, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has been removed from power, and there are tanks in the streets of Moscow. This was a vast country with a history of hockey. We couldn't believe that one of the greatest teams was on the verge of extinction. Now an American team has a stake in Russian hockey, rescuing an entire sport from thin ice. It's complete chaos. Trust me, I'll make you a good capitalist. <laughs> the Red Army team is 50% owned by the Pittsburgh Penguin and a group of investors that includes movie and TV star Michael J. Fox. And you called them what? Uh, well, they're called the Russian Penguins. At the beginning, we didn't understand the risk. We didn't understand what the country was like. I had the special talent of creating a firestorm inside arenas. Stevie figured, well, these strippers would make great cheerleaders. We just did whatever the hell we wanted there. People wanted to see the freak show, so they came. It's becoming the hottest ticket in Moscow. The U.S.-Russian partnership was going to be the model for the future, and that's how Disney got involved. Oh, boy, I'm going to be rich. Did you get a bad feeling? Yes, it got dangerous. Sorry about that, I'm back. Now that we've set the stage, let's introduce our panel for today's discussion. Panelists, if you haven't already, please turn on your video. 
So first off, we're excited to have with us the creator of Red Penguins, filmmaker Gabe Polsky. Gabe's previous work includes Red Army, the widely acclaimed 2015 documentary that chronicled the rise and fall of the Soviet Union through its legendary Red Army hockey team. Gabe has also produced and directed other highly regarded and award-winning documentaries, indies, and feature films, including In Search of Greatness, Genius, The Motel Life, and Bad Lieutenant. He's the son of immigrants from Ukraine who came to Minnesota, where Gabe, of course, played hockey. His family later moved to the Chicago area, and Gabe went on to study political science and play hockey at Yale before entering the film world. We're also very lucky to have with us today Stephen Warshaw. Give a wave, Steve. He was the Pittsburgh Penguins man on the ground in Moscow and a central figure in the film. Steve deployed his unique talents to make the Red Penguins adventure a major commercial success and had many adventures along the way. He went on to manage the firm Universal Sports Marketing, which creates branding and marketing strategies for professional sports teams, leagues, and players. And he's also a guest lecturer at Syracuse University School of Sports Management. Also joining us today is Nick Hayes, a writer, professor, media commentator with many academic and media awards to his credit, including a 1991 Emmy for the public television program, Television and Democracy in Russia. Nick is a professor of history at St. John's University in Minnesota, a contributing writer for MinPost, Minnesota's leading political blog, and also the author of a forthcoming book about his life as a Sovietologist entitled, Looking for Leningrad, Memories of a Russian Life. Next, we have Bernadine Jocelyn, who joins us from the Duluth area. She served as a diplomat in American embassies around the world, including Moscow, where she was a political officer and then special assistant to Ambassador Jack Matlock from 1989 to 91. In 92, she left the diplomatic corps, but remained in Moscow to direct important democracy building programs at the Eurasia Foundation, and also to marry and start a Russian family. Bernadine now directs the public policy and engagement program at Minnesota's Blandin Foundation. Rounding out our panel is Per Christian Hong, who lived in Moscow during the 1990s as well, while working for the World Bank, and then once again from 2010 to 2016, as Managing Director of Operations in Russia for A.T. Kearney Global Consulting. He worked with many major Russian and multinationals and served as a board member of the, Rus I'm sorry, of the American Chamber of Commerce in Russia. Now back in Minnesota, Pear is a senior partner at Kearney. I should also note that Pear and Bernadine are both my colleagues at the Russian American Business and Culture Council's Board of Advisor. So, Let's jump in. Our program will start with about 45 minutes of panel conversation and then move on to audience questions. So audience, you can type your questions into the chat box throughout the program and we'll collect and get to as many as we can during the Q&A. I'm going to direct questions to each individual panelist, but also welcome others to follow up with comments. So with that, let's begin. Um, I'd like to talk with Gabe and with Stephen first. Um, first of all, congratulations on the film. Um, Thank you. Yeah, there's an interesting story about how this project came about. 
Um, maybe Gabe, you can get us started and Steve kind of uh, jump in as, and describe some of that background to get us going. Gabe? Okay, great. Well, listen, it's an honor to be here with you and thanks for the wonderful inter introduction to the whole panel. And, and it's great. It's an honor to be here with everyone on this panel. Everyone kind of comes from a different background and it's, and it's very interesting to to, to showcase the, the film in this way. I haven't done that before. And, and, and I think it's just very, very interesting. So yeah, when, when I was uh, promoting uh, my film in 2015 called Red Army, it was about the rise and fall of the Soviet Union told through this great hockey dynasty and through the captain of the team, Slava Fetisov. And we were doing a lot of uh, festivals and, and, and screenings and one screening in New York for the New York Rangers organization, uh, you know, and, and the players in the front office, uh, we did a screening in, in New York and Steve Warshaw was there and basically came up to me after the screening and kind of, you know, complimented me on the film, but also said, you know, I, I, have this story that's just unbelievable about this red army team and, he, you know, he'll tell you, but he used the words, you know, if Red Army is the beauty, I've got the beast of the story. And, and, and he kind of just kept going on. And Steve's a very, you know, persistent guy and, 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 and you know, a good salesman. And, and, but, at, but I was very kind of almost, you know, it's not, it, it wasn't the, the thing that I wanted to do right after making a film about this Red Army team is reapproach it again, you know, so I was very reluctant to even kind of listen to it or consider it. And so Steve was persistent and, and, and asked me if he could send o over to my house, uh, like archival material and information on the story. And so he, he did send that, like a big kind of treasure trove of, of, of materials that documented this whole story from contracts to videos to paraphernalia and and I never really looked at it for like over a year until like, you know, my wife was cleaning out the house and, and we kind of, you know, I didn't want to throw it away because it's sort of disrespectful, but I, I, I finally kind of just started looking through it. What is this stuff? And, and I saw quickly that it was just this really insane story, wild and crazy about Russia in the 90s and all these strange characters that were affiliated in this this crazy idea and venture that, that was almost impossible and improbable between the Pittsburgh Penguins and this famous Red Army team that like, like how could that even be possible that, that this, this team was kind of up for sale and, 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 and considering American investors, it was the pride of Russia. It was just like really a crazy premise and, and, and the way that it kind of developed and ended the story was just, wild and crazy and it and, and I kind of saw right away that it was you know a way to tell the story of of the 90s and and this dramatic incredibly unique period in history and also tell the story of kind of U.S. Russian uh, dynamics and cultural relations and psychologies you know through this kind of small business venture it wasn't even that small but through this unique business venture. And it happened to be again about this Red Army team and 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 in the 90s era. So I, to make a long story short, I, I, I pushed it away. I didn't want to do it. And, and, and for even till the very end, really, because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as this hockey Russian, you know, guy that just does these movies about, you know, Ru Russian hockey and culture. So anyways, 
I, I interviewed Steve, got the story, realized that it, he was a phenomenal storyteller and character. And, and, and that was the first step. And I just kept kind of moving this train ahead. Steven, how... um, oh, sorry, I, I just, no. Steven, you were just convinced that Gabe was the one to make this film though, right? No doubt. Uh, first of all, Spasiba Bolshoi Pola, Dobre Dien, Minnesota, and Dobre Utra, Gabe. Nice to see you. Glad you made the film. Um, yeah, I think that convincing Gabe Polsky to direct Red Penguins was harder than convincing Coca-Cola to part with a quarter of a million dollars to become the primary sponsor of the Russian Penguins. It took a few years. And um, really, Rick, Gabe's right. Uh, the, the Red Army team, which he really turned into a beautiful film about the grandeur and the beauty of Russian hockey, in contrast to the beast of the team that we inherited, after the NHL had stolen all of the best hockey players from Russia. You know, the oil companies were coming and extracting oil and the NHL came and started stealing hockey players. So it was an interesting story considering the Cold War collapse. We thought we had a window, but I guess I would equate the two teams, the Red Army and the Red Penguins, the same way that Hamlet compared his father to Claudius, his evil uncle that killed his father, um, a Hyperion to a satyr. One, one was the hockey gods and we were the hockey beasts. So that's, that's how I describe it. Um, Gabe, you were born in America a few years after your parents emigrated from Soviet Ukraine. Um, did that family background inspire you or kind of prepare you for making either Red Army or this documentary? Yeah, I, I always kind of was caught in between, you know, two cultures because my parents you know being from the former soviet union i kind of grew up with that and with russian and uh, you know the, and and i kind of saw in the house how how they behaved and what what their culture was like the food this and that and then outside of the house it was all you know america you know and 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 the other that tradition and the, the mentality and so i kind of saw how different it was and how kind of I don't know, two, two, two of these cultures and how they kind of interacted, what was different about it and all that. And, and I, I was, I don't know if I was really curious growing up. I really tried to just assimilate pretty quickly as most kids do, you know, to fit in and all that. And then it wasn't until kind of later, I started looking really much deeper into the dynamics. And, and I, I, you know, being a filmmaker and documentarian, you kind of, start to explore things that you're you're maybe familiar with but also unfamiliar you know I, and and I, I i was obviously kind of very competitive hockey player and and uh and th that kind of combination of things somehow convalesced you know i didn't i didn't go out looking for this kind of stuff but it it started as kind of, I would say a small curiosity and then i kind of had this aptitude and it, it, it's almost like strange destiny you know to right. tell tell these okay. stories and kind of be a person that could kind of understand both cultures and be curious about them and in and, and that way to explore that i think that one theme that you bring out and emerges early on in the film is what happened when american capitalism kind of runs into the realities of post-soviet society and i thought we'd take a look at a few clips that kind of speak to this if we can run clips number two and number three The fans thought I was some crazy American. 
American freak. They were right. Um, I was the crazy American freak. We're going to have a uh, Gorbachev Yeltsin lookalike contest on the ice. We're going to have bikini contests in January. The younger Russians love all of this. The older Russians aren't so sure. Brian, here's something from Howard Baldwin to you. Just uh, so you'll thank remember you so his... very much. Good investment, bad investment, punch. real quick. Um, he's not going to make much money out uh -huh. of it, but having a lot of fun with it. Hey, have a life. Eight <clears throat> Our slogan, and uh, we get away with everything except murder. It's a crazy world, and we took advantage of it. But were you guys worried about the health of Russia, or were you worried about the Pittsburgh Penguins? Neither. I, I was just, all I wanted to do was to create something beautiful in sport. And we get in. All right. Um, Stephen, uh, you arrived in Russia in mid-1993. Uh, this is when the initial euphoria over the end of the Soviet Union was really being shattered by some devastating economic and general social collapsing that was going on. Um, for our audience, maybe it's worth noting that the Soviet economy had been stagnant, but it had been stable. And in 1990, only 1% of Soviet citizens were living below the poverty line. But just four years later, by 1994, that number had skyrocketed to almost 50%. So Russians were impoverished, salaries weren't being paid, food was either scarce or astronomically expensive, um, healthcare, housing, education, and other social services, which had been organized by the Soviet state or industry, were all kind of in ruins, as were nearly all state institutions and functions. And then you land in Moscow. <laughs> Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us some more about this backdrop and how it factored into both your personal experience in Russia and Moscow at the time and also your work with Red Penguins. Sure. sure. I think the best way to describe the collapse of the Soviet Union and what followed, um, the best way would be to use the word Kayuna Skatsi which is the famous film by Godfrey Reggio in 1972. It's from the Hopi language, which means life out of balance, uh, moral turmoil and corruption. I mean, this is the best way to describe Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Russians would probably call it chaos, which are house, house in Russian, which is chaos. And uh, Kurt Vonnegut would probably call it uh, the excrement hitting the air conditioning. It was the way he described Dresden uh, after the bombings. Um, Moscow in the 90s resembled a Tower of Babel. Um, there was communication problems. The language that was spoken was capitalism. And the only people that spoke that language were the oligarchs. And they were busy robbing the country blind. 
at the same time, the National Hockey League was stealing all their players. So obviously, when we landed in Moscow, uh, we were looked at askance. They were quite concerned that perhaps we're here to steal players, coaches, trainers, everything. Uh, so I could understand the reticence to trust Americans. But this is what we were facing uh, when we got to Russia. There was a new Cold War. And we unfortunately had to deal with the rules of Russia, which go something like this. Uh, you'll have a partnership. And as soon as the partnership starts making money, the Russians will change the deal. So you go from a 50-50 partnership to a 10-90 partnership. And by then, you have a decision to make. Do you stay for the 10% or do you come home? So eventually, we decided to come home because we had mafia and a lot of other elements that were helping our decision. But that's really the basis of what happened. We entered a, a really a new world. And, and the Russians weren't prepared for us, and we weren't prepared for them. So it was a beautiful disaster. Yeah, in fact, you didn't just decide to go home. You kind of made the decision to leave rather quickly when you found out that uh, it only cost 6500 to have a hit put out on you, correct? Right, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly, yeah. Well, um, I, I want to get to more of this, and I think we're going to circle around, but first I'd like to hear from our other panelists and how they experienced both the film and how it fit in with their experiences in Russia in the 1990s. Nick, I'd like to start with you, if I could. As both a scholar and a journalist, you were often in Russia during the 1990s. And so I just wanted to ask you if there are aspects of the film that remind you of your own experiences there, just how it resonated with you. Well, I, I guess two things real quickly. Um, if I may refer to um, both films in one phrase, I've noticed that uh, Gabe frequently used, draws upon Vladimir Posner in his interviews. And I, it brought back to memory an interview I did with uh, Vladimir Posner about this time, about 1990, 1990 it was. And uh, I was dealing with a man, as we all know, Posner knows America very well. He grew up here, emigrated back with his family to Moscow. I think he was about 12 years old at the time. Comes back and he covers the United States, basically, for the Russian media. But I had done this long interview with him, an honest, talk, an honest conversation about what he really thought about the state of Russia, what he thought about the state of the United States. In regard to the United States and America, and this is no anti-American radical at all, he said, what most disappoints me about America is it has an incredible capacity not to notice human suffering. An incredible capacity not to notice human suffering. And to Gabe and Stephen, they noticed. That was what so struck me about watching the film unfold. Without sugarcoating anything, they had a sense of the, the tragedy that was going on and how deep it was alienating the population and the misery. And I have one last perhaps theme. Of, in watching Russia in the 1980s, 1990s, there was one thing I thought Russia really had. The rest of the world had lost. It had a sense of hope. It had a sense that something was happening. Something was coming. A different era was coming. And then to see the just horror of the brutality of the 1990s and that disillusionment uh, to me was the last straw. If that was gone and it was gone, everything was gone. And again, just credit to Gabe and Steve for catching that sense of the emotional, the changing emotional climate in Russia.
And plus, it's just sent me a movie that's a lot of fun. I mean, I can admit that. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, um, in my long career in studying Russia and Eastern Europe, for that matter, I used to, in my early years, used to always say, um, you know, I, I'm going, you want, I'm going to, we think of Russia as being the home of Karl Marx or home of Karl Marx's ideology. Obviously, the other way around, it really is the home of the Marx brothers, if you think about it in their history. They're just hilarious. Everywhere you go, it's just a, almost like a, a comedy happening on the streets. Yeah, that's so true. That made my job pretty easy in that sense. You know, you just put a camera on somebody and something crazy is going to happen, you know. I'm glad, glad you said that, Gabe, because I always remember a conversation with a cameraman I worked with for a good decade or more and I'm still in touch with. He felt I was uh, marginalizing his role once. I, I forget, I was in an angry mood about something. Uh, we were in Leningrad, and I forget what we were even shooting at the time, but he asked me, tell me, what should I shoot? What should I shoot? I said, just take the camera out and shoot anything on the street. It's fantastic stuff. Look what's happening here, there, and there in terms of the street action. And he took that as, I, I guess, being patronizing to his video art, but I took it as being one of the great gifts of Russia is it's just a visual masterpiece. Right. Thanks, Nick. Um, Pear, I wanted to turn to you. Um, and because you lived and worked in Moscow in the 1990s as well, and you're still working with multinationals who try to navigate Russian business culture. So I was wondering how Red Penguins, that story compared to your own experience, I think you were with the World Bank in the 1990s in Moscow, but also your experience later on. Yeah, I, um, it, the, um, the, the discussion, I guess, you know, and, and the way that the movie started bringing it I, I have a unique perspective in having, you know, been present and living in, in Moscow at the very time when this movie was, was being made and gave Stephen Aleko a lot of what Nick said, but also, um, you know, continue to stay very active in the region. And, you know, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, I, I lived in Moscow from 2010 through 2016 and was responsible for running our, our consulting business, our global consulting business out, out of that market for, for Russian Eastern Europe. And um, there are a couple of things I, I was smiling while you were, while Nick, you were telling that story and, and together with Gabe, you know, what, what I always used to, to tell clients, you know, in terms of coming to Russia and needing to be able to succeed is, you know, the way, the way I would describe it to colleagues and to clients is it's predictably unpredictable. You know, you, you never know what's going to happen and you can never plan for what's going to happen. But I can guarantee that something is going to happen. I just don't know what it is. And so there's that sort of sense of kind of expecting the unexpected and being prepared for it and looking for those those moments of beauty as you kind of work through it is what I loved about the film, but also kind of capturing a little bit of that sense even today. And, you know, this this sense of hope that you were mentioning, Nick. Um, you know, one of the, maybe some of the great, the great tragedy of the market of Russia over the last 20 years is indeed there was opportunity in the early 90s to start to be able to try and capture, and I think a lot of ambition around what this could be. And, you know, having um, watched over the course of the last 25 years, a country that has never been able to achieve its full potential. And even today, you know, with high levels of antagonism, even today towards, you know, get, you know defined by the political environment surrounding both governance around the, 
the, the, the environment to do business and antagonism at lists. But once you get past that, you know, there's, there's a deeper level to this. And this is the personal level that the movie kind of, even in my experience working with clients and other companies is kind of the importance of relationships, you know, that, that need to kind of get to the connection and how you start to build and develop a sense of trust, you know, in being able to work with one another, you know, that, that, it gets driven beyond just um, you know, the agenda of one business versus the agenda of the other, but genuinely showing you know, curiosity and you know, interest in kind of what's going on, um, trying to take a really balanced view and trying to understand and, and kind of work in the success and being able to work the market is you know, having an appreciation for the, the culture and the piece. And you know, the, the additional layer, you know, you know, Gabe and, and Steve, you know, that, that this movie in particular is, one of those areas that you can create commonality and trust is through, you know, you know, while there's great culture and, you know, it's a, it's a culture rich in literature and music, but, but also sport is also super critical. I, I was fortunate. I had a son, you know, for the period that I was there from 2010 to 2016, you know, who played in the Russian youth hockey league from 20, from, you know, from age seven to age 13, he was the only American in this league, but to be able to speak to other Russians and talk about hockey and, football and make that connection at that personal level, you know, starts to create bridges to start to, you know, kind of move beyond just the superficial deal to something more genuine and, and more sustainable. And there's an element of that in the movie as well, that as I was reflecting and start to reflect on kind of what are the broader themes um, and how that even applies today really started to resonate and start to work for me. Great. Um, pair uh, kind of brings up the notion of trust being a key ingredient for successful international business partnerships, and especially in Russia. And I wanted to have us look at a clip from the film that kind of shows that idea. One night I was drinking with him and we had too many vodkas and he started bearing his soul to me. And he said, we love you, Jopa Soruchkoy, but we can never trust you because you're an American. And with that, I notice he's got blood dripping into his canned meat, offering me canned meat with his bloody hands. We were two totally different people. <laughs> For some insane reason, they were so paranoid that the Americans were trying to screw them. And all of a sudden, a beautiful sauna popped up right in the arena with marble that was imported from Italy, and it was about $100,000. How did all this money come in? They were stealing from us. 100 here, 200 here, and this became a trend. So Stephen, yeah, that was quite quite the revelation and quite the sauna. Um, so I guess to you and to the rest of the panel, I mean, I guess we've already touched on it a little bit, but why was it so difficult to establish this trust, both in the context of the Red Penguin story, but in Russia in general at this time? Anybody has a thought on wanting to jump into that? I know we're running a little bit behind on our conversation. Um, and we're starting to run out of time, but if anybody has some thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it if it's not too big a question. 
Well, if no one will take it, I'll jump into it. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's not really that hard to figure out. There's been 500 years of torture if you're a Russian or a Soviet. You've had emperors, you've had czars, you've had communists. Now we have Putin. But before that, um, think about it. You're a Russian. Somebody's going to be killing you or torturing you over the last 500 years. Um, so it's not hard to understand why they're so deathly afraid of the Americans and even the Russians. Um, as a matter of fact, I would equate watching this to watching a, 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 slow, a slow motion video of a car wreck because we saw it coming and we couldn't do anything about it. And it was really just a matter of how long we were gonna hang in there. I went to Jeffrey Sachs, who's the uh, famous author from Columbia University, uh, geopolitical scholar. And I asked him this window of opportunity that we had, um, could it have worked? You know, could the joint venture led to a, a, a real alliance between our countries? And the answer is yes, we had that time, but Clinton was too busy with Monica Lewinsky and not spending enough time with Boris Yeltsin. And I think we squandered a great opportunity. Okay, well, thank, um, the trust situation, I should say, that's very true, but it wasn't going any better. And Stephen, you alluded to, to this yourself, wasn't going any better amongst the Russians themselves. And the film touches on this with the 1993 constitutional crisis, um, which you arrived in Moscow right in the middle of practically, it sounds like, Steve. And, um, and it was coming from a political standoff that pitted Boris Yeltsin, then Russian president, against the mm -hmm. Russian parliament and especially Ruslan Hasbalatov. Now Yeltsin won out, but the street fighting and military force mm -hmm. that came along with that win killed nearly 200 people. It was the deadliest street fighting in Moscow since the Bolshevik Revolution. Bernadine, you'd been living and working in Moscow for over four years when this happened. And I was wondering what your experience of the crisis was and how you think it impacted the story told in Red Penguins. Thank you, Paula. Um, I, I have to say that, I'm, and I'm sure others on the panelists, on the panel pair and Steve who were there at the time, it's very heady to be suddenly find yourself in such a moment of explosive change. It's an unbelievable experience to be on the street and literally seeing the White House in flames. Uh, and people standing, and, and what was especially odd about that for me was half a mile away, people were still going about their business. They were still riding, driving cars and, and riding the Metro and going to, to shops. And so it was an unevenly experienced um, street protest. I think for me, the heartbreak, and I really appreciated Nick's comments about the changing emotional climate. What I experienced uh, during that time was a great sadness and mourning for the loss of what um, really was the, uh, I experienced as the soul of Russia, of people caring about something besides profits. Steve tells there uh, in the in this, uh, movie about, you know, he would always get on and put a suit on and show up at work bright and bushy-tailed in the morning and all the Russians would be hung over from the night before. Well, that's because in Russia back in the day, it, they had a saying that, you know, we pretend to pay them and they pretend to come to work. It wasn't about your job. Life's meaning was in relationships at the kitchen table and people would stay up late at night talking about the big questions, the, you know, about meaning and, and 
um, cult, you know, ideas and, and suddenly when you had, when it was all about making money, that was a, a profound shift in values and what people cared about. And here you had for decades, a society had been told that Oh no, sorry, Bernadine, I think we lost you. Um, and, and all of a sudden that was flipped on its head and it was profoundly disorienting to people to put money at the center and prop instead of relationships. We heard Pear talk about that. That was always what made Russia special. And now people were um, being asked to step into this new game where there are no rules and it was everybody for themselves. And it was a deeply um, corrosive influence on what had been so uniquely special about Russia, in my experience as an outsider, which was that deep attention to one another and connections and ideas. It wasn't just about making money. Thank you, Bernadine. Um, ultimately, that trust um, and the partnership with the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Red Army Hockey Club had begun to unravel, Stephen. Um, the Americans then looked for help from what they thought was a reliable source. And I'd like to run a clip and show what happened when you all did that. If we can run, yeah. And we get an invitation from the Army to come and visit. It was an invitation, but it was not one we really could turn down. So Howard and I went with Billy, our bodyguard, and Paul, our bodyguard. Gushin and Tikhonov prepped us for the meeting. And we went in, it was like going into a vault within a vault within a vault. As we come into the room, all the doors close, and each door is a guy with a machine gun. And we weren't sure if they were protecting us or keeping us in, but there we were. And in walks the general. And he was not a, he just seemed like he's in a bad mood. And then I said, it's an honor to be here. I gave my little speech and there's a deadly silence. And all of a sudden he takes his fist. <laughs> I think this guy might be hitting me. And he took his fist and he pounded it on the table. I look at Tom and he, he's ready to go home. <laughs> He was telling us that maybe there was American money and what have you, but this was the Army's team, and it was always going to be the Army's team. I'll never forget, we had Nike coming in from all over the world, and it was a Nike night, and we had Nike promotions. Tikhonov and Gushin cut Nike's logo out of the ice and tore their signs up and their rink boards and replaced it with Adidas. And I got in the next morning, and I looked at them, and I said, why would you do this? They're paying us $100,000 a year. Why would you take money out of your own pockets? And they said, because it's our fucking team. He did it to prove his power. All right, Stephen. Um, interesting clip there. Um, sorry for all of those who had under age 16 years attending, but that's okay. Could you describe how the collapse of the partnership felt to you then and really how you see it now all these years later? Well, it's devastating. You know, it's like any love affair that you've had or any business venture that you've had, 
you pour your heart and your soul into something. We created a front office <clears throat> that was Russian and American. Everyone was bilingual. Um, few of the guys spoke a few languages. We really had an A-team in the front office. We created something beautiful for the country. And unfortunately, the army couldn't protect us from the mafia. <clears throat> so it was really a, it, it, was, it was a cautionary tale. But at the same time, we were seen as the ugly Americans. The mafia wanted to step in. And we were toast at that point. All right. Um, at the beginning of the film, there's a clip of that 1993 interview in which Howard Baldwin says, maybe just a bit boastingly, he tells his Russian partners, trust me, we'll make you a good capitalist. Um, kind of looking back on that now, you know, I was wondering how you would assess that statement from your point of view, you know, was it really arrogance, naivete, or a lack of cultural knowledge that tanked the partnership? Or had you simply come up against what the mascot called the Leviathan mm -hmm. uh, right. that simply rolled over you at the end? Um, could you or would you have done anything different to try to change that outcome? Do you think that you as individuals or was it something bigger than you and your situation? that kind of doomed things. Right, I mean, first of all, let's define the term mafia um, because it is a central theme in the film. And, you know, the Italian mafia is known for organized crime. I would say the Russian mafia is known for disorganized crime. Um, they shot the wrong people. They killed an assistant coach on our team by accident. They were waiting for a tennis player to come out of the building and he came two minutes before their intended target and they killed our assistant coach right in our building. Um, so it was a crazy time. Um, you know, Baldwin's comment about making good capitalists, yes, that was offensive in the sense that uh, just like George Bush calling our war against Iraq a crusade, you know, it was it, wrong choice of words. But at the same time, Howard's intentions were great. All of our intentions were great. Um, unfortunately, you don't get to pick your partners, just like you don't get to pick your parents. Um, and we were stuck with a couple of criminal partners. Now, if we had better partners like Vladislav Tretiak, who is a god in Russia. He's now in the, in the Duma in Russia, one of Putin's top guys. If we had him, then the outcome would have been completely different. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, any other comments before we go into our last clip, Pear? I can see your... Well, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I keep in my, you know, I, I like to just kind of try to also kind of bring it to kind of modern day too, and, and just kind of parallels because, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, e even today, I know kind of, you know, and kind of thinking about kind of the, you know, what you were just describing, Stephen and, and Bernadine, kind of your, your point on values, which is kind of the, that essence of the cultural values of what the, the, you know, and I don't want to generalize, but you know the value system that Russia's espouse kind of pre pre crisis and post crisis still very much exists. Kind of this sense of connection, wanting to think through these big ideas, being connected. I can tell you how many times you know being able to sit late at night, you know, having a little extra you know adult libations and continuing to ruminate on literature or on the politics of the day and kind of listen to that because you know and independent of whatever kind of deal was being run or kind of what whatever the the piece was because that was how you kind of that's how you kind of move the ball forward and i think for a lot of americans you know as i kind of reflect on it you know you know the the cultural value is just kind of 
drive to the deal, you know, and we'll kind of work, worry about the stuff after the deal. And all that stuff is really important in kind of laying the groundwork to be successful longer term and some of those reflections. And so, I mean, they're just, again, so many themes here that kind of get resurfaced and cultivated that, you know, you know, there's both a, uh, it's it's a beautiful piece of work but there's a tragedy behind it as well you know that that also is kind of never really fulfilled that is uh that's interesting to kind of reflect on even as i think through you know different experiences that i know companies today are dealing with and trying to operate and and succeed are they still having some of the same issues or have things well i mean i think so so what's changed um you know you have putin today you know who is you know, driving, you know, you know, there are increased levels of, you know, if, if you are overly successful, you know, you have higher levels of regulation, surprised inspections that might show up in your factories. Um, McDonald's, you know, in, in 2016, we had the four largest, most profitable McDonald's that were shut down for high health violations. And, and it happens in kind of ways of just kind of exerting power, showing who's still in control. But the way to work through it is continued to be, you know, mindful of kind of the, the, the culture, kind of being local and being present, you know, in the mind of, you know, trying to work within the Russian environment rather than trying to exert kind of a different structure on top of a Russian environment. And that's, that's sometimes a delicate balance, the strike. And as I kind of was thinking about where the penguins were, you know, 20 years ago, you know, some of it was trying to impose you know, a value system on top of a Russian rather than, you know, in, in part, and some of it was adapting to, and there's sort of more adaptation, less imposition might have created a different result, but, you know, who knows, you know, you, you lived it, Steve, so it was a different time. Right. Um, so much of what we've discussed today, I think, revolves around the Russian experience after the Soviet Union collapsed, almost as much as about the film itself, which is spectacular, I think we all agree. Um, I'd like to have our panelists offer some final thoughts on what happened in, in the 1990s, both in general and with the Red Penguins, especially if you uh, questions for Gabe yet. Um, but before we do, I thought we'd look to the film for one opinion on this. The preeminent mission of our new government is to give all Americans an opportunity. Как случилось, понимаете, американцы рушили, рушили, это Советский Союз разрушили. So interesting uh, clip. I wanted to ask our panel, you know, what you think of Alimjan's idea that American democracy really just doesn't suit Russia. And I'm going to throw that open to anyone. Maybe Nick, you want to start us out with that? I, as, I, as I watched the movie unfold, I kept thinking about as we're moving now towards really the present. And um, when you look at the portrait of life that Gabe and Steve have provided, 
it makes it entirely sensible to me. Russia was humiliated. There was a sense of resentment, a sense of anger, mm -hmm. that it would be logical that it's going to end up as a re autocratic regime, which it did. And I don't know that this, we always make this generalization that um, Russia is not prepared for democracy or will never be democratic. It, it depends on what you mean by democracy. And I have a hard time defining it. And I also, we would have to say, well, we're sliding into the conversation about Putin. Uh, this hasn't been a good decade for a democracy worldwide, if we took a look around too. I'm not sure that it's a generic trait of the Russians. They do have a longer tradition. And I think Stephen, if I can reference this, they have a longer tradition of autocracy. The, the concept of autocracy goes back to the 15th, 16th century. There is a sense, this is not a negative word, they have another word for dictatorship. It is a, a sense of kind of the unity of all power in one institution, one person, and so on. And I think in the end of this decade, that's what they wanted. They wanted an autocratic leader. Anybody else? Bernadine, do you have any thoughts on this? Yes, that? thank you. Um, I'd like to comment that uh, f um, on, from my perspective at the American Embassy, we, always, we often talked about the trade-off between security and freedom. And the idea that when push came to shove, Russians always cared or Soviets more about security and safety, that they had to choose one. They'd always default, it was always more important to be safe and secure than free. And I think as we look towards lessons we can draw about the social contract that governs how we are with one another, to see the cost to society when you break trust at, you know, at, um, about what you can count on and the idea that everyone's going to follow the laws. And if nobody is, then if you do, you're the chump. My uh, favorite uh, recollection was sitting, uh, a very telling recollection, sitting one evening in Moscow watching the television and they had a show from the tax police and the head of the tax police for the Federation had a, a, a dresser drawer full of cash. So if, if nobody's following the rules and you do, then you're the chump. And so to have a sense of the social contract that the rules apply to everybody and that we are secure because we know that we're all in this together is priceless. And I think um, in America, we often take uh, that social contract uh, for granted. And we need to understand the cost of losing trust at that social level. Social contract is what makes America work, that we believe that the rules apply to everybody. Other thoughts? I have one last. Let me jump in and be a bit more clear about my first remarks by telling an anecdote. I believe it was in the summer of 1992. I was in Moscow, and I don't remember what the television project was at the time, but at one point, I went off by myself uh, with the camera, not far from Red Square, and I was just doing kind of box pop and background to what the mood on the street was. I had done such things, I don't know, dozens, many, many times before. Uh, never, ever had there been any animosity from local people towards me. I just, you know, you know, politely just say, and everybody, I, excuse me, I'm from American television, and everybody would graciously part and allow me to come in. And so it's the summer of 1992. I'm doing the same thing I, I had always done. I'm not paying a lot of attention, and I'm by all alone. And I start walking towards it. There's a crowd, and I can't tell what the political speaker is saying at first, I walk towards them. 
and the gentleman sees me. He looks at me and he, you know, he asks me who I am, where I'm from. And I, I tell him the same thing. I'm from American television. I expected to be treated just royally. And he turned and he turned to the crowd and he started working them into a chant, Yankee, go home, Yankee, go home. And they continued to do this repeatedly. And frankly, first time also, I thought, you know, wasn't that a good decision for me to go alone? Uh, I could get hurt here real fast. I marked that as the date of the first time I noticed this transformation in the post-Cold War world from what formerly had been in Cold War times, a very favorable image of the United States to in the post-Cold War era, this tremendous animosity. And I would advise anybody to anticipate that that gets stronger, not weaker these days. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to kind of watch kind of the ebbs and flows of how that's kind of progressed, Nick, because you know, I, I remember that very well too. Now, even as I think about kind of early 2010, you know, being there kind of, again, 20 years later, you know, there was some openness, a lot of investment climate, but by 2014, you know, you would, you know, you'd be watching Russian TV, you know, and this is height of, you know, you know, there's sanctions and the drop of price of oil and a lot of the pressure that's on the Russian economy. And, you know, there, there's, you know, we, we watch, you know, as Americans, oftentimes you watch stereotypical depictions of of uh, Russians on television and they're always the villains in the movies and you'd be watching Russian TV and all of a sudden they're the cartoon characters who are the kind of buffoons in the, the, the you know, Russian speaking a very thick Russian American accent who's not very smart. And like there's this kind of anti-Yankee go home kind of sentiment that then started to swell up too. So even over the 25, 30 years that I've been watching it, you know, I've seen that kind of go up and down and it feels like things are in a up trend versus downtrend. And I'm interested also kind of Gabe, your perspective as you were making this film, whether that kind of factored into your thinking around kind of why you made this film now as well. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I, 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 I really enjoyed listening to all you guys and hearing different perspectives, very kind of deep thinking going on here. I, I try and listen to what you guys are saying and then sort of simplify it in a, in a way in my in my brain and i it's and and the way i simplify it is that if 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 i have you know money to invest quite a bit of money and somebody says to me you know do you why don't you invest it in russia or in a, in a russian company there would be no chance in hell that i would ever do that because there's no there's too much uncertainty there's too much you know we, we, we know the millions of examples where, where like you said, the tax plays, all, the, all this stuff, that, that, that there's too much uncertainty. You, you, how do you do business there? Any, any real businessman that, let's say, has had like, like you, you know, traditional success in the United States, like what would have such a hard time there. And, and there's way too much uncertainty. There's, there's, you can't do, you, you can't, invest large sums of money and I mean I don't know unless you're looking for really quick short-term gains there you know what I'm saying that's what everyone was doing they just wanted their their quick money and get the hell out of there you know and because until until the country kind of establishes like kind of fair play or fair rules of laws and I'm not saying that the U.S. has its own huge problems with with you know, fairness and corruption and the justice system, but it's a little bit, at least it's a little bit easier. I, I think, I don't know. I, yeah. I, what do you guys think? I mean, I, 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 um, 
I think I think about that a lot, and you know, I, I know last last we kind of paint this picture through the lens of the 1990s and the the chaos, and there's a real story to that. You know, I, I think it also Warren said, and even with the challenges today, this country today is a lot different than it was 30 years ago. And you know, I, you know, if you are if you are a young, you know, I have, I have children who've kind of grown up. If you if you have a young child who's born today in Russia. You'd rather be born today than you certainly did 30 years ago and 30 years before that. It's a, it, it is a, it's an improving environment, a place that's growing. There is, you know, still reason. I think Nick, there are still reasons for hope, and I, I tend to be one. Okay. Um, you know that you know the the glass is maybe half. I view the world as the glass half full rather than half empty. But I, I had a Russian colleague who, who reminded me that it always depends on whether you are the one who's drinking or the one who's pouring as to whether it, it really is the bad view of the world. Um, and, and I think too often as Americans, we tend to view the world as the ones that we need to be able to drink it in rather than the ones who are pouring it out. And I think that, that uh, sometimes also kind of meters the view in the lens of the world. So, oh, Paula, you might be on mute. Sorry, my dog was barking. Um, so anyway, I wish we had another hour or two. Um, and alas, we don't. So I'm gonna have to bring the discussion for a close. I invite our panelists and our audience who may wanna stay on a few minutes longer um, to do so, but I'm gonna have to bring the formal program to a close right now. Um, so I wanna thank all of you panelists for this great discussion. And again, like I said, I hope you'll stick around for a few more minutes after in case there's a few audience questions that we weren't able to get to. I also wanna offer a special thanks to Bob Fallon of Fallon Consulting Group for bringing all of the pieces and players that we see here today together. Uh, also a quick shout out to Carolina Gustafson and Tim Odegaard from Global Minnesota for all of the help and technical support and other support as well. Also all the folks from RABCC, and our partner organizations, including Todd Lefkow, Tom Hansen, Mark Meister, and Leo Grishner. Thank you for all that you do. And um, again, our partners are listed in the chat box. Please check them out. Check out their uh, organizations and the events that are going on. I also wanted to note that uh, people who attended this webinar today will be receiving uh, an email with a link to the online version, uh, recorded version of this webinar and this conversation. So I hope that you will pass it on to others uh, who may not have had the opportunity to be here today and let them know about it. So with that, I uh, think we'll close this formal part of the session. If anybody wants to stay on, I'd love to ask uh, Gabe what his favorite interview was and what he thought of Alam Jean Tukunanov. Oh, I see a bunch of questions that are in the chat room. I, oh, really? Yeah, I, I, I for I'm one, I, I, I've got some extra time for sticking on, you know, to be able to continue the discussion if, if others do. So, that's right, yeah. Steve, Steve does as well. So, that's I'm with you. Yeah. So, did you want to know about Aleem, John? Because I do have to kind of start on a journey here, but. Uh, Let's hear it. My favorite, my favorite interview yeah, for some reason was, my favorite interview was probably Aleem Jean, just because it was so weird and I can't believe. Basically, I woke up one morning and the the guy that I work with in Russia said, you know, okay, we got this guy. He was on Interpol's ten most wanted with Osama bin Laden, and 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 you know, 
we got to show up at his restaurant around like lunchtime. And so we, we, you know, obviously my heart was racing a little bit and, you know, I'd never met with a guy like that. And so uh, we show up to his restaurant and there's like five bodyguards, these huge guys and the restaurant was totally empty, but it was lunchtime and it's a, you know, the running restaurant and he was the only guy in the restaurant and it was like incredibly opulent and, you know, he's sitting in the back and, you know, they escort me and we sit down and he offers me food and, you know, was just like incredibly kind. And, you know, I don't know. And I'm not trying to say that this guy's like, not, you know, like a, a, you know, not a criminal. I have no idea. I'm not really in the FBI. So, uh, but we, you know, we, we started talking and, you know, you know, one thing led to another. He just, I don't know, it was just really weird and interesting. And he was talking about, you know, Russia and about, you know, his whole mentality on doing business and, you know, how he wasn't guilty and how he was talking about the U.S. and, you know, how he really wanted to kind of visit the U.S., how his kids, like, went to school there and, you know, he can't go anywhere except Russia. It was just, it was very bizarre, but... I knew it was going to be kind of uh, I needed to initially, in fact, initially the interview was not in the film. I couldn't find a way to get it in. And I just, it was, it was not kind of a natural part of the film. And, but then like in the, in, in the third period of the movie making, I, I kind of figured it out how to, how to get him in, you know, and was really happy that we, we included him in there. So that's that's that. But I appreciate everybody for for tuning in and thanks Bob, Fallon, and all the participants. Thanks, guys. Thank, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks thank for an you. incredible film. Yeah. Thank, thanks for making thank a fantastic film, Gabe. Exactly. Thanks for participating and thank taking you. the time to think about it too. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to what's next for you. All right. Thanks, Paul. All right. Take care. Take care. Yeah. All right, well, I'll leave it to the rest of the panel, whether you have time to stay and take any audience questions or whether you have yeah, to leave. Sure. Here, I think for some reason, questions aren't showing up in my chat. So if you wanna kind of read some out. Um, sure, let me, let me see I don't know I why they're not showing up, but they're not, so go for it. I passed the baton. <laughs> Well, Pear's looking, I want to jump in and, and there's a question in the chat that I really appreciated. Um, it says, for that time in the 90s, how you remember, did you feel that there was something else outside of total? We just, we, we just lost Bernadine. Yeah. So she, that, that's the question. Did you feel there was there's something else outside of the total chaos mafia? Tremendously you, liberating time. Uh, Bernadine, yeah, you you were you were cutting out there, Bernadine. Maybe you... I just wanted to add that yes, an emphatic yes, there was a lot of excitement of thinking about what could we be, what is possible, who are we as a nation. What can we live into? And I'm gonna give one very quick example and then pass it on. So at the time in the early 90s, I got to be part of the creation of a people's archive. 
where people recognize the importance of all of the history that they've been accumulating and in their apartments and they came together and brought um, documents, letters, uh, things that they, from their attics, from their um, shelves and created a people's archive to write a new history and a new narrative about um, Russia and what had uh, what had gone on under under um, the czars and under communism. So it was tremendously hopeful. And part of the um, heartbreak of today is to see those people 20, 30 years later now still holding their hope for what might have been a new and different Russia in the face of the autocracy that Mick described for us. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And and you know the the, the question around what what else I mean, and there, there still is you know there there still is a lot you know of, of you know that makes this country you know as you know as, as enticing and as interesting it is for all of us that have been in and around it. Um, should I pivot to a couple of these questions, Paula? You can can that's yes, please. Yeah, so, so, I'm the, so Stephen, this is maybe one. So uh, there there is a question here. We kind of. You know, what, what's happened to the red hockey team since Pittsburgh CSKA is still around, of course. But do you know what's happened to Victor Gusev and Gushin, you know, yes. you know since the Penguins? Uh, and, you know, and what are they involved in? Are, are you still in touch with them? Yes, let me answer those three questions. Uh, Victor, Gush, uh, I'm sorry, Victor Gusev uh, has become the number one broadcaster, sports broadcaster in the country. He handles all the Olympics and soccer for the country, which is the big sport, not hockey. It's now soccer. Um, and uh, he's sort of like the Bob Costas of Russia, I would say. He's really carved himself a nice niche in that country. Uh, miraculously, Valery Gushin is still breathing oxygen. Um, he's had heart attacks, alcoholism. He's been in prison. I don't know how he survives. He's obese. He I just don't get it. And but still, he's, still interviewing from the front lobby of the of CSKA for yeah, all the exactly. Teams. Yeah, exactly. And the good news is that the team uh, went through a long dry spell of without a championship, and then just last year they won the uh, the Gagarin Cup, the Yuri Gagarin Cup, which is their Stanley Cup. Um, so that's what's happened to the big three: um, Gushin, Gusev, and the team. And I just wanted to conclude by stating that I think that the Russian penguins were the canary in the Cold War coal mine, if you will. Um, everyone was watching us. The NHL clubs were watching us because if we were successful, other NHL teams would have jumped in and created joint ventures with Dinamo, Krylia Sovietov, Spartak, all the big teams in Moscow. And that would have brought the countries together um, because then you would have had countries, you know, teams in Canada and the United States creating these alliances. But unfortunately, that's not how it ended. <laughs> and I really don't think that there's any chance that this can happen as long as Putin is in office. Um, he despises America. He's using us brilliantly. And um, no, I don't think there is a future for any sports uh, joint ventures in the country. Yeah. You know, there, there's another question here, Steve, you know, that says that what had had anything in your professional personal background prepared you for these experiences in Russia before you went. But I, I might add, you know, maybe a corollary to the to that is, as you reflect on your professional career since coming back and leaving Russia, 
what elements of that experience have you taken with you and how has that prepared you mm -hmm. um, and what, what are the lessons that you apply even in your work today? Okay. I'll ask you both those, both those edges. Yeah, okay, so the first question, being prepared for this gig, nobody could have been prepared for what we walked into. However, I spent my career before that as the general manager of minor league baseball, basketball, and hockey teams. So I was used to dealing with bad teams <laughs> because all the talent goes up to the major leagues and the same thing happened in Russia. Uh, all the oak trees went to the National Hockey League, Bore, McGilney, Fyodorov, Fatisov, Larionov, Makarov, all the big stars, and we were left with the acorns. And I can tell a quick anecdote here because it won't be on the air. Um, but when the journalists finally met us and had a lot of tough questions for us, first one was, you know, why did you steal all of our players? And um, my answer was, well, the NHL might have the oak trees, but we have the acorns. And I got a quick, fuck your acorns, we want our oak trees back. And that really was the sentiment. <laughs> that was the sentiment in the country um, that we, we were raiders. We were raiding their country, stealing their talent. And there was very little compensation. And that you can blame on the National Hockey League because they created a deal that was very advantageous to the NHL club. So um, that's the first answer, you know, that I, I did spend time in the minors. I knew what it was like to work with little money and little talent. So you have to be creative in those environments. And, and that's what we did to create it. Um, and your second question? Well, so, so now kind of looking back, what are the lessons um, or what, what have you taken from that experience and now you've applied in your, uh, in, in your current roles, you know, since yeah, I think tolerance, I think, you know, as you get older, you have to learn to accept cultural differences. I studied anthropology at Syracuse University. So I've always understood that you have to embrace and dive into a culture to understand it. And that's what I did. Um, you know, I fell in love over there. Um, I lived in a collective, you know, I shared a bathroom and a kitchen with another family. Um, you know, I, I did things the right way. I took the Metro every day. I didn't have a security detail. You know, I gave out tickets on the trains in the morning to little kids with hockey bags and their moms. You know, it was, it was a different type of approach that we took. And the most important thing I did to make sure that the Americans were not vilified as badly as we were is that we honored the, the legends of the Red Army and we retired all the jerseys, hoisted their numbers up oh, to the rafters. Awesome. You, you can see in the picture here, this is Trechak right there. And here is Kuskin. Um, Kuskin is dead. Most of the coaches have died. Tikhanov died in 2014. Kuskin died. Ragulin died. Gamayev died. I mean, almost everyone died. We've lost six or seven players from that team, bizarrely, you know, murdered or car accidents. It's been, you know, it's, you know, as you know, the, 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 the lifespan of a, of a Russian is in the fifties, you know, you don't live long in that country. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I learned that the only way to do business in the world is to accept and embrace that culture. And we did that. That's why I drank with them every night. And that's why I, I went to bandy matches. I don't know if you know what bandy is. You were there, you know, the bandy is the big ice with, without the sticks and the skates. And so anyways, bottom line is that um, I think we all learn as we get older to respect your adversaries, to respect your partners, and to understand the culture. 
Well, maybe maybe that's a good segue to this next question here too. You know, and this is to all the panelists. You know, you've all experienced both cultures. You know, what do you see as the biggest similarities and areas of commonality, and where are the biggest differences? And in that context, where are the opportunities to collaborate or opportunities to come together? Paula, you, you can count this in answering this one too. Oh, um, you know, I really think uh, kind of what our organization is doing right now, kind of what Todd likes to call track two diplomacy, kind of people to people. I think right now that is right now the main avenue that's open to us and uh, hopefully working, we're almost in what some people have said is a new cold war. Um, maybe maybe not but i think right now kind of grassroots up is definitely the main avenue that we have open to us right now which is why you know conversations like this and the activities that are in other organizations are doing to promote cross-cultural ties are so important because i think there is a lot of negativity associated with americans <laughs> right now in in russia and vice versa and i think you know kind of having those contacts and ties right now and in that's that's the main way we have now we can hope that in the future at the governmental level things change so that we can have a little bit uh more cooperation and less contention but i don't see that happening at least in the next few months so i think we continue to do programs like this I don't know how the rest of you. Well, if I could add, I would say that one of the most heartbreaking parts for me of the movie was the scene where I forget which character it was talked about how we were crazy about America, you know, and but Adili, yes. forget the Russian word he used, we, you know, and I had that same experience. Nick did too about almost a reverential awe of me as an American in late Soviet, early Russian times that. They just believed about our country that is a land of opportunity. You know that myth we have about what we that what we represent as a democracy, and it is devastating to that squandering of that goodwill. That was, a, I think, a priceless asset that we had as a nation. That normal, regular people look to America as a land of opportunity and liberty and justice, um, and to see that lost now is um, something I think we need to be uh, sober-minded about and acknowledge and work to regain. That was um, an important asset that we have that we can no longer uh, take for granted. Yeah, that is a big difference in our positions now. And then I definitely remember studying, and I'm sure the rest of you do, being in Russia in the mid to late 1980s. And, you know, I could go down the street and meet Russian rock stars. It was, you know, amazing. That's you know, right. I'm a simple American person and I met Boris Gorobinchikov, you know, or or other people. So it was a really heady time, you're right, uh, Bernadine. And it got me thinking what you were talking about, circling around to something that Stephen alluded to, in that we did have an opportunity and instead of doing kind of a Marshall plan for uh, Russia and you know, kind of Russia, especially in Eastern Europe in the 1990s, we didn't take that approach. And so we squandered that yeah. opportunity. Instead, we kind of advised shock therapy, which had such disastrous consequences for that economy, that austerity regime. You know, that's what Stephen walked into. That's what we all lived through 
you know, with our friends losing all their life savings basically overnight and their pensions. I think it's hard for Americans to understand or fully grasp unless you were there, unless like Bernadine, you had a Russian family, you had in-laws who kind of lost everything, had everything wiped out overnight. I had the same thing with friends and, and you know, close friends and family. Um, and, and that, you know, we just kind of let them flail. Um, you know, I think what Nick was saying too, what Posner said, you know, Americans have this disappointing um, ability to not see suffering. And we were just like, oh, democracy, oh, capitalism, oh, great. And yet we were letting them drown. And, and, and somehow we, we, we had this, this ability to sort of dismiss that as well, the, the, they weren't ready or their culture isn't going to accept it or somehow, you know, rather than frame, accepting the responsibility that as Americans and Westerners we had at the time for laying the groundwork in thinking through, you know, in the reconstruction period post World War II is a great corollary, Paula, you know, that, that didn't happen in the early 90s, that certainly could have had there been different vision or different leadership at the time. Right. Yeah. And and what a what a big mistake, right? Because now China, Russia, the U.S. we're the odd man out now. And, That's right. Um, and if we had created that alliance with Russia back in the '90s, then maybe China would not be an issue now. You know, I'm just saying that there's just so many global power struggles that have taken place since we left. And you're right. I think the onus should have been on the Americans, and I blame the National Hockey League a lot of this, you know, why they, I'll give you a quick story. Uh, Slava Fatisov and I went to Gary Bettman um, with, our, with our hat in our hands. We created a program called Save Russian Hockey, where the Russian stars would contribute $10,000 every goal they scored, um, 5,000 for an assist, and then the league would match this money and also send, have, send merchandise, equipment, you know, waters, juices, everything to the, all the training bases in Russia from all the NHL sponsors. And Gary Bettman looked at Slava Fatisov and I, you know, here's the Wayne Gretzky of, of Russian hockey. And he dumped us like a pile of garbage. He offered us $10,000, which is what they give to a junior bantam team in Manitoba. You know, it was just such an insult to Russia where they could have easily have gone in and there was no more ice in Russia. Can you imagine? They were selling all their ice sheets to flea markets. You remember all the flea markets? Those were on ice rinks at one point. And so there was no, they sold, we sold part of our building to Mercedes Benz. How ironic, you know, letting the Germans park their cars in the front of a Russian hockey arena. You know, they just, it was, it was total chaos. And, and we really blew it. I mean, we really, America blew it and the National Hockey League blew it, and Congress blew it, and Clinton blew it, and the window has closed, and good night, Irene. <laughs> so, sorry about my negativism, yeah. Well, I think I didn't want to talk to Gabe about it. Um, speaking of, uh, of, of negativity, I thought it was very interesting that Takta Hunaf, I think his name is Alamjan, he is actually, uh, I was doing a little sleuthing on him, and he's on the most wanted list, can't come to the US because of a money laundering scheme out of 62 Trump Tower. <laughs> right, right, right. What a shock. <laughs> I can't believe so, it. So anyway, speaking of, you know, when you don't I'm, tend to things early on, what happens later? Right. I'm, I'm gonna have to exit everybody, but oh. I've, I've been saving up my metaphor for how I would wrap this up. 
we haven't quite asked, we're supposed to ask a question about what, what will you do differently? And I'll, I'll give you my metaphor for the collapse of Russia and what I would have done differently very quickly. In the world of television and radio, you had to work out at Istankino through an international division. And the head of that that I worked with for years and years was really a creepy guy by the name of Boris Nyonov. And um, basically, you know, you had to, um, you had to provide, well, a little bonus for every request for registration to shoot and so on and so forth. Well, of course, as you would imagine, comes the fall of the Soviet Union and Sinonov needs a job and he outs himself, you could say, that he'd been a KGB colonel all along. <laughs> and he had various projects and things he wanted to collaborate with me on, but the most interesting thing he had to say, and I'll wrap this up quickly, is for only $500, he could give me my KGB file. <laughs> now, I would dream of reading that thing today. Uh, but I was a young beginning professor at that time, not a lot of money, traveled on the cheap, and I didn't have $500 to pay for the thing. Mm. So as much as I think about it all the time, it brings me back to the conclusion, what would I have done differently? I would have somehow got that $500 yeah. and got my files. Everybody, this has been a wonderful <laughs> conversation. Thank you, Paula, for everything you've done to put this together. And uh, to, above all, to Steve and Gabe for what a, what a, both films. Uh, just wonderful entertainment and also food for serious thought. Thanks for inviting me to the group. Thanks. Nick. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for joining. Great. Well, hey, that's a may on that note. That's a good way to kind of pull this to a close. Right. Great. Thank you. And sorry, I couldn't help with the questions. Somehow, I technical difficulties. Hey, Paula, one quick question. I have some sure. questions on the chat room. If, will this stay on if I start typing in there if, to answer yeah, or we can stay on if you if there's more I just can't see them so if there's more questions I'm happy to we can stay no. on the video I'm sure I mean we can talk or I can just write whatever's easiest for you uh, oh I'm happy to hear the questions and the answers if uh, pear and Bernadine if you need to go or want to stay whatever I want to echo uh, Nick's thanks. This was a really terrific conversation. Very thoughtful. Thanks, everybody. So much. I have to sign off now. Thanks All right. So thanks, thanks, Bernadine. Thank oh, you so you much, Bernadine. And then there were three. And then, and then, <laughs> then there are three. Well, let's, I mean, Stephen, we could keep going. I, I have, I'm going to have to drop here uh, in a little bit, but yeah, let's, um, what, what, what questions are you looking at? Yeah, let's just do it real quick because, you know, people yeah. took the time to write in, um, so I'd love to respond. I was 34 at the time, 33, 34 at the time. Um, and we discussed, you know, my preparation. Um, we talked about the penguins, where they've left. You read that question. Um, Americans exacerbating this, this catastrophic situation. We addressed that. Prostitution, we didn't talk about that. Yes, that's interesting. Um, prostitution <laughs> is, is legal in Russia. Marijuana is not, but prostitution is, go figure. Um, and, we didn't uh, even get into the whole strip club at the, in the yeah. I'm so glad that we didn't because it's just not one of my favorite subjects. Um, only in the sense that, you know, it's easy to talk about strippers and free beer, but that really wasn't the essence of the film. Um, it was just sort of a game day decision that I happened to go down the night before to see what was living underneath the arena. And there were women in cages, naked, being lowered from the ceiling. The most bizarre sight, you know, no windows, no air. It was about 100 degrees down there. It's 
stunk to holy hell. It was just one of the weirdest moments that I experienced in Russia. Um, so why don't we end on that charming note? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Um, is there, are there any other questions that you're seeing in the chat box? Well, I, I see 37 people still in, but I don't see any new questions that are coming up here. So. All right. Well, I, I think with that, I have more questions, but Stephen, I think we're going to have to do this sometime in person you know, over maybe Zakuski and some vodka. And some, like this. Yeah, right? like, like this. Like yeah. this, yeah. Yes. yeah That's go. it. <laughs> You're a real Russian. <laughs> you, right. you got it. Thank you so much, Stephen. We very much appreciate your time and pair as well. And to all of our audience for sticking with us through this Q&A. And we hope you enjoyed this event and we'll tune in for others. And Thank Paula, you thanks much. for your adept, your adept facilitations. Fantastic. Thanks for, uh, thanks for this. Oh, my nice pleasure. Day. And sure. thank you, Global Minnesota.